Do we need zoning? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Nolan Gray. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Nolan Gray. Nolan is the research director for California YIMBY and an expert in urban land use regulation. He is also the author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Nolan previously worked as a planner in New York City, where he worked on the front lines of zoning. He is a widely published author, beyond the things I already mentioned, with work appearing in outlets such as The Atlantic, Bloomberg City Lab, and The Guardian. He lives in Los Angeles and is originally from Lexington, Kentucky. Nolan, welcome to The Curious Task. Hi, Alex. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Nolan, in each episode, we ask a question and base our episode on a theme, and we go over the answers and conversation takes us. Today, our question is, do we need zoning? And I really think that at the end of the day, that's a really good opportunity for us to get into some explanation of your thoughts on zoning, as well as some of the problems you think it causes and so on. But as usual in these episodes, I always want to start with some context and then drill down further. So, again, seem might seem like a little silly question, but as a very general thing, what do we mean by municipal zoning? And like, what kinds of processes do cities have today for zoning? Like, obviously, for you, like, this is very, you know, you know, general and, and, and very obvious as a point. But for those who might just know, you know, so far as, oh, yeah, I guess I guess cities kind of have some regulation around what can be built and where. And that's as far as their knowledge takes them. What, what would you offer further as a general answer of what's going on when it comes to municipal zoning? What does that really mean? Right. Well, it's a really important place to start because I think, you know, whenever I raise some of these arguments, one of the first bits of pushback I'll get is, you know, oh, but we need we need people to plan out the streets or we need people to uh, inspect building plans to make sure that they're safe. Um, I completely agree with both of those concerns. And I think the only way you get to a point where you understand the need for dramatic zoning reform or abolition is to understand what zoning is and what it's doing. Zoning is a small part of the planning ecosystem in North America. Zoning is really trying to do two specific things. The first is it uh, radically segregates land uses. So it's predicated on an idea that residential, commercial, and industrial should all be separate. Of course, the industrial component of that is less offensive. Uh, that said, in most modern cities, we don't really have an issue with noxious industries. Um, but where it gets to be a little bit of a problem is the notion of strict separation from all residential and then also segregation of different types of residential. So in most cities in North America, zoning codes uh, explicitly say certain neighborhoods, we're going to allow only detached single family homes and certain neighborhoods, we're going to allow duplexes or small multifamily buildings. So that's the first thing that zoning is doing. It's very strictly segregating the city on the basis of land use. The second thing that zoning is doing is it's restricting densities. It's it's placing strict rules around what you can and can't build on any particular parcel, not just in terms of land use um, and not just in terms of what most people probably think of when they think of this. You know, they probably think of height limits or maybe setbacks from the road. In many cases, zoning codes will explicitly say you're only allowed to build so much floor area on this lot uh, because of the district you've been assigned to, or you're only allowed to build so many units in this building, even if you could have potentially fit more in and built more housing on the property. So that's what zoning is doing. It's segregating land uses and it's restricting density. Um, we can talk more about it. As I argue in the book, I think this project is a lot less tethered in actual health and safety concerns that people normally assume. 
and often ends up being a tool of artificially restricting the housing supply, of entrenching uh, racial and socioeconomic segregation, and of mandating a very particular form of growth and development uh, that doesn't necessarily always work for everyone. Right. So, of course, many people might want to live in a detached single family home in a car oriented neighborhood on the edge of town. Um, totally understand that the market would probably build a lot of that. But in many cases, zoning codes make it to where that's kind of the only thing you can build in a lot of U.S. cities. So what we have U.S. and Canadian cities, excuse me. And so what we have is a situation where um, it's very hard to afford housing in many of our most high opportunity neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are close to jobs and neighborhoods uh, that have easy access to different transportation options. Um, and so, of course, all across the, the continent now, we have a very deep housing affordability crisis uh, that started on the coast, started in superstar cities and places like where I am in Los Angeles or up the coast in Vancouver, New York, Toronto, and it's spreading to other smaller cities as they bump up against the limits of what zoning will allow. Right. No, thank you very much for the overview. And like, there's a lot there. And I think that was a great overview and a great way to kick things off. Um, as far as some of the problems it creates and some of like, you know, specifically you were talking about as well, housing affordability. I'm just going to put that aside for just a second, because I want to go back to something you said towards the beginning there, too, uh, which is very key, because at the beginning you talked about there is, I guess, ultimately, you could say some limited amount of zoning that you would personally agree with when it comes to safety and, and so on and so forth and, and the limited amount. But when I take a look at like zoning now, um, you know, it seems like one can make the argument that zoning per se is really a limited sort of discussion or, or, or sort of should should be. It's the kind of stuff you're talking about, like, you know, basic health and safety stuff, making sure like maybe buildings aren't collapsing on people's heads or there's not like, you know, an oil smelter dumping <laughs> whatever runoff they have onto a residential area. But it seems to me when I look at the way zoning really is now, um, it's mostly used in the service of planning. Now, you know, is the extent to which municipal authorities want to plan and specifically sort of design the cities really the issue here? Because it seems to me that almost zoning becomes a misnomer when you look at the stacks of regulations and paperwork and and and, and the different types of zones and specific rules that are going into this whole conversation of quote unquote zoning. It really seems like planning to me and then zoning is just a tool of the plan. And that that seems to be where a lot of the issue is. I'm not, I'm not sure if that resonates with you, but, but that's kind of my read of the situation, too, often. Yeah, well, you know, so I'll, I'll uh, two points on this. The first is, I think the irony here is actually that many of these zoning codes are pretty untethered from contemporary planning objectives, right? So in most cities in the US and Canada, we know we need to be building uh, a range of housing types. We know that family sizes are shrinking. We know that we need more uh, multifamily developments that are particularly amenable to uh, childless young professionals or retiring seniors who might want to downsize. Uh, we know we need to be uh, allowing more housing typologies and places where people have easy access to transit uh, to, you know, not create a situation where we have a just completely unsolvable traffic problem. Um, we actually, there's a lot of important planning objectives, right? We know we want to generally not be needlessly stimulating the conversion of natural lands uh, for new housing. Of course, some of that's going to happen, but ideally we wouldn't want to have a regulatory framework that mandated a whole bunch of that to happen when it wouldn't otherwise have happened. The irony, though, of course, is that in many cases, our zoning codes are completely out of sync with a lot of those planning objectives. I mean, you in the U.S. here, right, you can open up your typical, we call it a comprehensive plan. This is supposed to be the broader planning document for the jurisdiction setting out the values and the goals. And it'll have all these amazing, nice things. You know, we want a range of housing typologies. We want housing at all income levels. We want housing near job centers and near uh, high opportunity, you know, parks and schools. Um and then you, you know, we want we want housing to be built in places where people don't necessarily need to have a car. 
And then you open the zoning ordinance and it's completely at odds with this. So I, I would actually flip the problem a little bit that ironically, a lot of these zoning codes are totally out of sync, even with what, what planners would try to do, right? And, and in many cases, this is uh, allowing things that reflect what we know about uh, uh, market demand from just from mere prices. Um, I would say to your earlier point, right? I mean, all of that stuff is important, right? Um, the, the health and safety considerations with neighboring land uses, I think, is key. And jurisdictions have been regulating stuff like that basically since humans started settling down, right? So, I mean, before the rise of, of zoning, jurisdictions would say, okay, there are certain particularly offensive land uses like slaughterhouses or tanneries that we're just going to say, look, you you have to be in this discrete area or you have to be outside of the municipal limits, Right. And that's reasonable. You know, you're taking you're taking uniquely offensive land uses that are going to impose negative externalities and separating those. Or jurisdictions would say, okay, we're going to have discrete areas where industry can happen and we're going to, you know, deliberately site those in a way to where they're not, you know, upwind or upstream of housing or like commercial uses. Um, right. That that very narrowly tailored form of land use regulation, I think, was highly defensible. I think it made a lot of sense. Uh, you were you were targeting land uses that were known to be potentially offensive, or you were just regulating the specific impacts uh, that were a problem, right? So you know if if we we think a lot in terms of what land uses should go where, but realistically, the better way to deal with this is what are the impacts that uh, bother people that can be measured, and what are the acceptable thresholds for those impacts, and how will the acceptable impact vary based on where you are in the city? To my mind, that's a very uh, uh, interesting and important land use planning project that we kind of gave up on in favor of just saying, well, we're going to solve these problems by just radically separating all um, uh, land uses. I'll give you an example here, right? So before the rise of zoning, it would be quite common for even a residential neighborhood to maybe have uh, corner commercial uses. You might even have something like a corner bar, Um, you know, certainly in, 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 in parts of, of the Midwest and, uh, in Ontario, you, you still see a lot of neighborhood bars. Um, of course, these would be illegal to build today. And why do we do that? And I think it wasn't totally without basis, right? You could have a problem where you had a bar that was an inconsiderate neighbor that was bringing large amounts of traffic into the neighborhood or, or that was not mitigating sound from their sound system or was not crack, cracking down on smokers hanging out out front talking. But what we did was we responded to those potential risks by saying, well, we're just no, no commercial is allowed in this neighborhood, period. When I think the prudent way to deal with issues like that would have been to say, well, what are the impacts that bother people? The actual measurable impacts that I think we would all agree uh, are inappropriate. Um, how do we measure those? How do we set standards? How do we enforce them? To my mind, you know, that's it's not a purely, you know, we don't need any rules argument. To my mind is what do you want uh, the rules to do and how do you structure them to where you actually give people the flexibility and the options, you know, if you want to be, if you want a considerate bar owner in a neighborhood, uh, like a like a considerate corner supermarket uh, or a considerate corner barber, uh, is actually a great amenity to many people's minds. And so I think that part of the problem is that we've we've really lost the plot on what we want land use planning to do. So, so yeah, so to so follow through on that thought, then like so so what's your sort of like highest level like elevator pitch like like you know couple sentences like at, at the end of the day because you're an expert in this if you were to sum up where where the trouble really is like what is it then because you said like because you correct you corrected me and basically said no and, and in fact you think that you know it really is that zoning and everything we're doing right now is sort of detached from sort of ultimately uh urban plans and what goals at least and intentions people have and so on and so forth is it really just the fact that the the zoning is getting too in the weeds and getting into too specific use discussion is it the fact that there's ultimately 
ultimately sort of just too many vested interests, the municipal level? Is it all these things? Like if you were to like narrow it down to, uh, at the end of the day, some factors, what really is underneath the surface of this losing the plot, as you said, where, where, where and how did this actually go wrong? That's a really great question. I mean, it's it's. I, I tell a little bit of this history in my book, but if you look at early zoning codes, they in many cases were were very liberal. I mean, they were very flexible. There would be broad use distinctions. Um, there would be relatively light, you know, height setback rules. Um, you know, you look at the original New York City 1916 zoning ordinance, and I think it's like you know 15 pages, right? Um, but what has happened is these documents have become far more extensive. Almost every single facet of new uh, development is heavily regulated, often regulations that have absolutely nothing to do with health and safety, right? You know, considerations such as the minor design features of a building or, you know, minor distinctions in terms of what commercial use is and is not allowed or minor minor rules about the actual floor plans of apartments or how much parking needs to be provided. Um, these rules have accumulated over the you know past 100 years of zoning in North America, and it's a one-way ratchet. It's hard to get rid of stuff. I think that we're living in a really unique moment now. We could talk more about this, where you have a the Yimby movement, and you have a lot of critical attention being paid to this as we've sort of stumbled into this uh, 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 housing crisis in both the U.S. and Canada. Um, but for the most part, the rules just got stricter, and we added more process. Um, you know, I'll give you an example here. I think is a, a little bit of a wonky change the tapping with zoning, but very important. As originally envisioned, the idea with zoning was that if you follow the rules, you check all the boxes, you get to walk into the Department of Building Services, whatever it's called locally, and get your permit and you're good to go. You're out the door, right? Um, there, there were problems with that, right? That the rules might be unworkable or the, the rules might be strict, but at least if you complied, you knew you could get your permit. But what we've gravitated toward in, in the US and Canada is a system where almost all uh, new projects are discretionary. So they have to get the approval of a, a planning commission or a city council that may or may not give them permits. What this has done is it's politicized all new developments. And to varying degrees in, in cities across North America, this has caused a lot of dysfunction, um, right? You now have a system where basically every large apartment building that gets built in Los Angeles, for example, uh, depends on uh, the approval of the city council. And as a result of this, we regularly get uh, uh, federal investigations having to do with land use related corruption, because when you politicize new development, of course, you create up opportunities for corruption. But what you also do, and this is similar to why zoning has become stricter over time, is that certain discrete special interests have captured uh, the process. Hmm. Right. So particularly in, in smaller suburbs, what you have is small groups of potentially highly unrepresentative incumbent property owners say, oh, cool. I can increase the value of my asset, my property, my house, if I go out and prevent new homes from being built, right? So if I if I perpetuate an artificial scarcity of housing, and of course, zoning is just the number one tool for doing that. And so what you get in many uh, suburbs and smaller jurisdictions is that the whole planning process is captured by people who have very restrictive preferences or may have a financial stake in housing scarcity, and of course, zoning has been deformed uh, toward those interests. I mean, it's it's very it's a it's a classic case of I think uh, regulatory capture. 
Right. No, excellent. That, that's a great way to, to put it and cap that off. And actually, I think that's a great time to segue into like a couple of specific problems with zoning and things like that. You know, you, you were just treading into like affordability there, for instance. So so I'm just going to kind of pivot into that now and jump in further as we as you were on that train of thought. I mean, in, in, in an article that you wrote that's in the Atlantic called Cancel Zoning, um, the subhead of that article basically talks about how zoning and it summarizes your whole article. Basically, it says it's a, so zoning must go if we want to fix housing affordability, segregation, sprawl. And in another article, you're talking about, you know, zoning in, in the way it is now must go if if you, you want to see improved economic growth and, and you know, the environment better taken care. Of. I mean, like, that's obviously a lot of stuff. So, I mean, you, the claim that basically if, if zoning goes or zoning radically changes from the way it is now, we're going to get into, like, the meat of the matter on these issues. And in many cases, you're basically saying zoning is, is one of the root causes of these issues. That, that's pretty interesting. So I want to get into that further now and actually go through a couple of these specific points. Like, you know, everyone talks about urban sprawl. Everyone, of course, in favor of economic growth. Uh, we talk about housing affordability. All of these are obviously pillars of subjects on their own. But how zoning intersects with that or causes it in your mind is, is, is I think, the very interesting part. So let, let's start with the first one then. And, and granted, Nolan, I understand this is unfair because each of these could be an hour episode on its own. So totally acknowledge that. <laughs> but, it, you know, but if we could just to explore it and dip into it and get people more interested in this stuff, let's start with housing affordability then. The, whether zoning is in the discussion or not, obviously housing affordability and the housing affordability crisis is just a, a huge political topic right now in Canada, United States, at federal, uh, state and provincial, and also local levels. So wh what's your take on that when it comes to zoning then? Like, where has zoning contributed to this? And how, what do you think the solution is? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if uh, to, to, to your point about the range of issues this touches, I always say, if you've got questions, uh, the answer is zoning reform. <laughs> um, so, I mean, housing affordability, right? I mean, this has just absolutely exploded as an issue over the last few years. I remember when I would give talks in, in uh, maybe states or, or uh, provinces away from the coast, places that historically had not thought of themselves as having a housing affordability crisis. Um, you know, there was this notion of, well, why, should, why, why does zoning matter, right? I mean, we don't have housing affordability here. We just keep building new subdivisions out on the periphery. We have no problem. Um, of course, that's all dramatically changed over the last two or three years. Not necessarily for reasons having to do with zoning. I mean, you had a lot of rapid inflation. You had uh, labor market instability. You had just you know uh, construction materials costs going on a roller coaster. There were a lot of issues, but the underlying issue is that we have this local regulatory framework that um, makes it in many cases just outright illegal to build a lot of homes. Uh, it requires the homes that are built uh, to be quite a bit more expensive. And those homes that can get built have to go through a long, difficult, very expensive discretionary entitlement process, what I was just talking about. Talk a little bit about all of those um, in turn, right? So one, zoning often just makes it illegal to build a lot of housing. So in your typical North American city, uh, in the US and Canada, um, in many cases, something like 70 to 90% of residential areas might be restricted to detached single family homes. Um, so that's essentially saying in the vast majority of areas that we've deemed appropriate for residential, it is illegal for you to build a duplex or a fourplex or a small multifamily building, um, right? In many, in, many, in many commercial areas of many cities, uh, it's illegal to build the types of mixed-use apartments over shops that were historically quite common before uh, zoning. So in many cases, zoning just outright makes it illegal to build a lot of types of housing, especially things like manufactured housing or single room occupancies, types of housing that serve people who are potentially at the bottom of the market. Second is these zoning rules often force the housing that is built to be quite a bit more expensive. So you might have rules that say if you're going to build uh, a new subdivision, for example, even a, even a new subdivision on the periphery, uh, you have to have minimum lot sizes of at least uh, a half acre. 
right? Or 10,000 square feet, um, where people might have said, hey, I, I would actually be quite fine with a, a home on a smaller lot, maybe that's more affordable, uh, or that allows me to afford a home that's closer to my job. Zoning in many cases says, well, we're not going to let you make that trade-off. We're going to force you to consume uh, additional land. There are a whole bunch of other rules like this. In cities, for example, you often have minimum parking requirements that say, regardless of what developers think they can uh, you know, feasibly sell and what consumers actually want, we're going to force there to be so many parking spaces, right? Um, in the in the U.S. context, for example, there's evidence that if, if you have to do any excavation work or build a parking structure, that can increase the cost of a unit by $50,000. If we're talking, you know, a $250,000 condo, exactly the type of starter home that we actually need to be building quite a lot of, that can increase the cost of a new home by, by a fifth, right? Um, so pretty substantial. And then, of course, the third is what I was talking about earlier, where we often just subject new housing to extended, highly politicized, very risky entitlement processes, right? I mean, in many cities, you have to go through multiple public hearings. Uh, there's years uh, of, of back and forth negotiation. Projects get squeezed for impact fees and exactions that really don't have anything to do with the actual impact of the new project. But collectively, all of these things make housing quite a bit more expensive. And of course, there's, as I said at the start of this point, there are a whole bunch of other issues we need to solve, right? I mean, construction labor, we, we need to scale up the pipeline of new construction labor. We need to remove tariffs that uh, needlessly make things like lumber or steel expensive. But all of that stuff kind of doesn't matter if the housing is illegal to build in the first place. And so that's where I think zoning reform is just absolutely key. Yeah. When some people talk about housing affordability, they often talk about um, the fact that houses are increasingly unaffordable to many people as sort of just a fact of life. And they kind of go, oh, you know, houses aren't affordable now. So therefore, you know, if someone's socially conscious, they'll say, well, we need to build affordable housing. Maybe they want a local program started or whatever. But you're basically saying that the pro the, this, the problem is more structural, economically speaking, right? Like this is like, at the end of the day, what I'm getting from what you're saying is like, there's, there's not enough uh, supply on the market to actually even out these prices and bring things down. What you have is constricted supply and that shoots prices up. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and this is a pretty robust finding within the literature, the urban economics literature, is um, regions that have stricter land use regulations are associated with lower rates of production and higher prices. Um, you know, I mean, econ, econ 101 doesn't get you everywhere, but at a basic level, um, the, the mismatch between housing supply and demand is kind of unavoidable. And it's funny, too, because, you know, here in the U.S., we have this interesting situation. I'm not sure about Canada. We have this interesting situation where institutional investors are buying up single family homes and everyone's fretting about this. And I understand, right? They don't want, they don't want homes that might've been bought by families getting bought by investors. And I, I, I sympathize, um, but read their financial reports. Like what, like the financial reports where they have to justify to federal regulators why they're doing what they're doing and why this is actually a smart investment. And they will just, they'll, they'll tell you the whole story. They'll say, we're buying all of these single family homes because we don't think that production is going to catch up. And we think that prices are going to keep going up over time. Literally, they're saying we think there's going to be permanent housing scarcity and we think prices are going to go up, right? They're, they're telling you the whole game. People are making billion dollar investments on this. And I think that we, you know, if we want to have housing affordability, we should take this seriously and we should be saying, what do we need to be doing to ensure housing abundance? And I think getting zoning out of the way of new housing production is just unavoidable. Right. And, and actually on that exact point there, isn't there sort of like a 
I don't know like how, how to frame it other than saying it, it ultimately is sort of a, a class or vested interest issue regarding people who pay lip, lip service to saying they want more houses. Like we'll often hear some developers talking about, oh, of course, we want to develop more. And, you know, we'll often hear people that are homeowners now, uh, maybe within the last many years, they've owned a home and they've seen that price increase a lot, too. And they're basically saying, of course, I want other people to afford a home. But when push comes to shove, it seems to me that that there's sort of like a paradox there, right? Is a developer still wants to make a nice profit off their investment, of course, naturally, uh, which would make sense only from an economic perspective. And the person owning their house uh, wants that price to go up and 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 uh, or at the very least never do anything, you know, that's under leveling off. I mean, you might get a couple of socially conscious people or market liberal people like myself who are a homeowner that kind of say like, yeah, whatever, let's let this price go down. I want other people to afford homes, but I feel like I'm in the minority there, right? At the end of the day, when it comes to either development companies or homeowners, it seems that unfortunately we're in this sort of a bit of a paradox contradiction here where the people that are holding on to this property, the people that are interested in developing don't want too much to be developed. I think that's a huge issue. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think there is a little bit of a tension there. I will say, you know, in, in the context where we, we see jurisdictions that build a lot of housing, Prices of existing units don't necessarily go down. They just don't have the crazy appreciation that we see in places like San Francisco, right, where homes are 10xing a value over a very short period of time. Hmm. Um, you know, so I think it's it's perfectly okay to say, right, you know, a home can be a, a, a normal investment. It's a way to store wealth. It's a way to store equity. Um, outside of context where you have some sort of like economic implosion, home prices don't generally fall. And I would add too, there's better evidence coming out on this that there's not even necessarily robust evidence that multifamily getting built near, say, a detached single-family home actually lowers its value. Um, so, you know, I think there is a little bit of, of uh, uh, pseudoscience and, 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 and wishful thinking here. Um, you know, I will say, I, I think more folks are coming around on this issue uh, when you frame it as, you know, shouldn't people like you uh, be able to afford a home, right? You know, I think many people, sure, they get excited when they see their home price going up. Um, but then it starts to hit them, you know, Hey, like a version of me at age 25 would not have been able to afford a home here, right. not even attached single family home, but a condo or a town, right. a townhouse. Right. Um, or folks are realizing, Oh, my children can't afford to buy a home within two or three hours of where I live. They're having to move away to some cheaper metro area or far out to the suburbs. Um, right. And of course, you know, with young adult children and grandchildren, of course, that gets, that gets deeply personal and communities are torn apart. Or, you're, or even a lot of people who are potential beneficiaries of the status quo, right? They're getting all this housing wealth. They're realizing, oh, I can't actually downsize anywhere near me because there's just not a stock of smaller, more affordable homes where I can downsize and, and have a little bit of money to fund my retirement. So, you know, this issue, I think, is it, the situation has gotten to be so bad that it's affecting even people who are theoretically the beneficiaries of housing scarcity. Interesting. And and actually, just to drill into one more point further that you made, though, and maybe I mis or misinterpreted, but I understood what you were saying there is that, like, you actually think that it's not true that even if there was a flood of supply that you'd see prices drop too much, you, you think it'd be more of a leveling off or maybe a modest decrease situation? Like, we, we, we couldn't get, you know, there's no way to wind back the clock, clock even if, uh, you know, supply were to sort of explode in some cities. You don't think you're going to see, like, a, a housing, like a, I guess, like, deflation. Like, you don't think that'll actually be the case? Well, so I want to be very clear here. The average home prices absolutely would fall because you would have a new, a whole bunch of, but it would fall because there's a whole bunch of new, much more affordable supply coming online. Right. Right. But do I expect the, you know, the, 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 the 7,500 square foot lot 
uh, in an inner suburb in a place like Vancouver to fall if we suddenly allow townhouses or uh, mid-rise multifamily to be billable on that lot? No, I don't expect that the, the overall value of that property would fall. I expect that the land price would actually probably go up uh, such that there would be a little bit of a windfall for the incumbent owner. Um, so the the housing affordability is not falling on the assets of current homeowners falling in value uh, unless they're in really, really marginal markets where people were only buying because they didn't have any other choice. I think that you would probably see overall prices fall for homes way out on the uh, ex-urban periphery. Uh, but for your typical home in an inner suburb where we would now be allowing more development capacity on that parcel, it would probably actually be to the financial benefit of that uh, property owner. And this is an important point to, to, to play with for a little bit because I think this speaks to the fact that I, I made the point earlier that I think many people have selfish uh, or self-interested reasons for pursuing these really strict zoning restrictions. And I think there's a lot to that. But I also think that it's heavily motivated by just reflexive fear of change. I think people tend to see hmm. their neighborhood as part of their extended home. And of course, you wouldn't want anyone coming into your living room, reshuffling your furniture. Um, and there's this notion of, well, you know, I don't want anything around me to change. And I think that's that's a, that's a little bit of a cultural problem. Right. I think right. that living in a healthy city or living in a healthy community means that there is change over time. And that's OK. Um, you know, I, I always say to people, right, everybody says, I don't want my neighborhood to change. Um, but in a, in a context of high housing demand, um, no change is not the option. Your options are, are we going to is the built form of the neighborhood going to change? And we're going to build, you know, maybe a townhouse here or a small apartment building there. The built form of the neighborhood is going to change, but the type of person who can still afford to live there, young families, maybe even children, a mix of retirees, young professionals, singles, couples, families. Um, if you want to keep that type of diversity in your neighborhood, that means actually changing the built form of your community. If you don't want your community to change at all in terms of built form, it's going to dramatically change demographically. right? So here in California, something that was surprising in, in the 2020 um, census, a lot of uh, California suburbs that are building no housing whatsoever are actually losing population, getting significantly older and getting significantly wealthier, right? Uh, and it's because, of course, the home prices are so high that they're not having this natural turnover of young families moving in, old retirees moving out and downsizing, new homes getting built, slight, you know, diversifying and, 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 and strengthening communities over time. That's not happening in these places. They're literally stagnating and declining. Uh, but if you go there, it looks exactly like it did when the, when the suburb was built out in the 60s and 70s. But I would argue that that's a much more dramatic a much more extreme form of change. And I think people are catching on. I think they're realizing like, you know, I don't like what's happening in my community. My community has become a place where, um, you know, uh, folks who grew up here or folks who have lived here their whole lives can no longer afford to stay. Right. And you know what, if that means uh, removing zoning barriers that allow for a few extra homes to be built and the community maybe looks physically a little bit different, I can live with that if this remains a place that's that's um, that has the mixture and the health and the vitality that it once had. Yeah, and I think it's actually a good uh, place to step into something that uh, I wanted to get in be just before we head to the break. So one more before we do that. Um, yeah, like because like as I was saying, like you know, in this trio of things that you know, in this article we were talking about housing affordability, segregation, and sprawl. Uh, you know, one of the next things on the list we just talked about affordability is that is that segregation aspect. I mean, that's obviously a big word that can be many different things, but at, at a high level, when you talk about you know, if if zoning must go and we can fix housing affordability, segregation, and sprawl, what do you mean by segregation, and how's that caused by uh, zoning, and then and, and what you know, how's that going to be solved? Basically, what are we going to see an improvement on if we really get to the bottom of the zoning business? Right. Well, the ability to determine what type of housing can be built where, very simply, is the ability to determine who gets to live where. Um, and this is by design. I mean, you know, I think that was this was one of the main motivating, uh, 
ideas behind early zoning was right. to try to block certain types of housing and by connection the people that live in the housing right so as i said earlier in you know 70 to 90% of many north american cities it's illegal to build anything other than a single family home um so what this essentially says is that if you can't afford a detached single family home uh, on a lot of at least a certain uh, square footage or acreage you are not allowed to live here um of course that has pretty clear socioeconomic implications uh we get more and more neighborhoods that are uh, uh segregated on the basis of class and then of course in much more so in the US context that has racial implications um uh and 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 certain marginalized groups uh who are also economically marginalized uh, are excluded from certain neighborhoods um this is very different from neighborhoods historically uh right so you in a in a, in a pre-zoning neighborhood you would have a mixture of housing typologies uh, affordable to people at different income levels, um, uh, affordable to people, uh, well-suited to people at different stages of their life. Right. Um, and that was okay. That was healthy. Um, the sort of way we've planned our cities, this sort of zoning regulatory straitjacket that we put our communities in now says, well, there's going to be discrete areas for, you know, if you're wealthy enough to afford a home of this size, you get to live here. And if you're below this income, you're going to rent an apartment over there. And then, of course, this has all sorts of other negative knock-on effects in terms of access to opportunity uh, and and social services. Um, So, you know, there's pretty robust findings here in terms of jurisdictions that adopted these rules earlier uh, in the U.S. context often ended up being quite a bit more racially segregated. Um, You know, again, uh, of course, I'm talking about U.S. considerations because this is a context that's familiar with me. But in many cases, the people who are writing these codes would often go on and do them in Canada as well. Um, right. So in, in a little bit of background here that I think is interesting, um, hopefully be interesting to your listeners in the 19 teens, uh, there are great migrations of African-Americans out of the South. Um, right. I mean, they're realizing that's a bad deal. I'm, we're going to move up to industrial areas, uh, in the upper South and the Midwest. Um, in reaction to this, a lot of jurisdictions adopt explicitly racial zoning. Right. Uh, right. So this is, this is South Africa style zoning where the government is saying whites are, allowed to live here and blacks are allowed to live there right i mean this is this is this is bleak stuff right the supreme court of the united states in a rare moment of clarity on racial issues at this time says we're not gonna allow that that's completely that is not the role of the government to be doing this type of thing but what local governments do in the aftermath of that is they say well okay we can't impose racial segregation but we can impose socioeconomic segregation we can say that in certain neighborhoods only housing uh of a certain price threshold is allowed um, and what that gets you is almost the same result. And in many cases, you look at these codes, um, you know, in, in places like Atlanta and, you know, the white district was literally like, you know, blotted out and then replaced with uh, the single family home district of at least certain size. Uh, right. And people who wrote these codes, people like Harlan Bartholomew, for example, again, to t- to draw the, Cana- the Canada connection a little bit more clearly, people who are writing these segregationist zoning codes often went up and, and wrote codes in places like Vancouver. Uh, or wrote codes all across uh, 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 Canada. So, you know, the the segregationist uh, implications of a lot of these regulations was fairly explicit. Yeah. And as you said, that's an example in the 19 teens of it, it being e- explicit. But then uh, today, someone might say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're past that kind of time. But, but you know, then in some ways it's implicit, right? And I actually like the point you made before about, like, you know, different stages of life, right? Because this isn't just about, you know, let's say two 35-year-olds who have different income we're talking about here. Like, you know, it's natural that some people that j- just starting out their career, their life at a, at a younger age in their 20s might be in a different kind of house or need a different type of situation. 
situation. Uh, maybe, you know, for instance, they want, actually want to live in an apartment in the urban center, for instance, versus somebody who's 50 or 60. Um, and, and also different stages of life in the sense of people who are doing different things as far as their uh, social mobility or, or their income mobility as far as immigration, let's say, right? Like, you know, you can, you, I guess one can imagine how zoning in and of itself is, is sort of can also be tied to like, you know, um, an intentional, like, you know, the ghettoization of new immigrants, let's say, right? And you have certain areas, like, obvi- you know, you have certain areas where, you know, certain types of people because of their income or they're new to a country or an area or whatever are just going to kind of be packed into because that's the only place where a city's allowing a certain type of home or a certain type of thing to happen. Like, I guess that could be another effect as well now that I'm thinking about and, and listening to you talk about the stages of life uh, paradigm as well, because that, that's interesting as well. It's not just income. It's also many other things, too, as far as where people are at in their life. That's a really great point. And, and you know, I think to, to maybe tease it out a little bit here, right? If people want to, for, for example, a new immigrant, a new immigrant might find a lot of benefit in being in a community where there are other many other immigrants, right? They might There might be um, community organizations or uh, supermarkets that are, are, are serving their, or, or folks who, who speak their language, who can help them acclimate uh, to a new country, right? If people, many people, there might be reasons why many uh, immigrants might, might want to live in a community like that. But it should be a matter of choice, right? I think when when you have uh, folks being concentrated uh, of a certain ethnicity or a certain class because the regulatory framework in place kind of only gives them that option, doesn't give them any choice to do otherwise, then I think things are a little bit of a problem. And that's how I always frame these things. You know, I, I spend a little bit of time beating up on how North American cities, basically all of our housing growth has come from new single family homes on the suburban periphery. I don't actually have any problem with that as a form of development. I grew up in, you know, a new suburban development on the periphery, um, right? I can see why many people at many stages of their life might want that. But the thing is, is that modern zoning codes in many cases literally don't give you any choice, right? They don't give you any, they don't give you the choice to say, I'll take a smaller unit uh, that's closer to my job with a shorter commute, or I would like a larger home out on the periphery uh, with a longer commute, or maybe I don't care about having a big yard, but I would really love to be within walking distance of a coffee shop uh, or a hardware store, or maybe I'm perfectly fine with that. To my mind, this is the thing that we don't really know what form cities should take unless we give people the choice to make these decisions on their own. Of course, you need rules in place to say, well, you know, you have to cover the cost of your marginal infrastructure. Don't do things that impose costs on your neighbors, you know, stormwater runoff or smoke or smells. But if you adhere to those basic considerations, people can actually have choice in the way they want to live. And I think we would get cities that actually reflect uh, the the housing options and the range of different types of neighborhoods uh, that people might like. Right. And uh, I was going to jump into another question. This conversation has been going great so far, but I realize we're a little bit over time for for our break. So we're going to do that right now. We'll, we'll put a stake in the ground there and come back in a second. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nolan Gray today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Scott Scheel, Ben Hobbs, and Amy Willis. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. 
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nolan Gray today. So, Nolan, I think the first half of our conversation, or, or two-thirds at this point, we got so caught up into it that I took the break a little late, but no worries, no worries there. All right, the first chunk of our conversation was really great. We covered a lot. We had just finished off the tail end of that chunk talking about housing affordability, and then we got into the segregation discussion and and, and, and how zoning's related to that. Um, I, I kind of established I wanted to go through that trio that was sort of touched on in that Atlantic article uh, by you. The, the third part in that trio is, is, is sprawl. And again, this idea of zoning goes, then we're fixing tons of things, of course. And one of those things is is, is sprawl. So in, in what negative, obviously, if there's a problem that has a solution that you're talking about, you obviously think that a problem's negative. So in, in, in what negative way are you referring to as, as sprawl? And uh, and how is uh, doing away with zoning or radically changing the way it's done now going, going to fix that? So what, what problem do we have? And, and, and why do you think it needs to be addressed? Right. Well, let's set up the problem first. So, of course, cities incrementally expand outward over time uh, as populations grow or as populations become wealthy or as transportation technologies uh, make certain areas, you know, accessible within a one hour commute of the central business district. That's all well and good and natural. I mean, cities have been doing that since the dawn of time, um, to use a freshman uh, metaphor. Um, but what might concern us is if there are regulations in place that needlessly force cities to sprawl out. Sprawl, of course, you know, has many benefits. It produces a lot of new housing. Maybe less people live in a metro area where they have access to jobs and opportunities. Uh, but it also comes with cost. It might consume natural lands. Uh, it might uh, lock in place a development pattern where folks are dependent on cars, producing a lot of greenhouse gases. There are reasons to think through the trade-offs with sprawl. And certainly if we have regulations in place that are forcing that sprawl to be uh, 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 greater than it might have been in a pure market scenario, uh, then we should critically engage with some of those uh, possible causes. Um, I would argue that, of course, zoning is a major contributor to why North American cities sprawl. Um, Zoning is just about the only form of development that isn't uh, prohibited uh, by zoning. Uh, is a new detached single-family subdivision on the edge of town. It's very easy to build new subdivisions out on the periphery. Where zoning makes it hard to build is actual infill housing, maybe taking an old single-family home in an inner suburb closer to jobs and turning it into three or four townhouses, or taking an old strip mall and turning it into uh, a five-over-one multifamily building. Uh, Those types of infill developments, zoning makes it very, very, very difficult to build. So we get this very peculiar uh, development pattern where not necessarily because of market preferences, but because of regulatory triage, almost all of our housing growth in many North American metro areas happens out on the periphery rather than in existing cities where if prices are any indication, many people would actually prefer to live and might like to live if given the option. So that's one thing. I think there's clear, and in many cases, these rules are explicit. I talked about minimum lot sizes earlier. Minimum lot sizes are literally rules that say, if you want to build a single family home, you have to consume X amount of land, regardless of what you your actual preferences and trade-off uh, right. uh, view on the trade-offs are. Um, second, too, is that zoning often presupposes cities that are completely auto-oriented. Uh, and again, some people might like to live that way, but zoning rules come in and second guess uh, folks and say, well, we're going to require that Every single uh, um, uh, storefront has to have a giant parking lot. Every single apartment has to come with two parking spaces. Um, We do all of these things that essentially don't give people any choice other than to be completely dependent on their cars. And of course, we know, again, just based on prices, many people might like to live in neighborhoods that are more walkable, uh, more bicyclable, more transit accessible. Um, So again, 
you know, I go back to this issue of giving people choice, right? Um, you know, let people have choice in how they live. Uh, let people make trade-offs. Zoning in many cases doesn't do this, and it locks in place a development pattern that's sprawling and completely auto-dependent. Nothing wrong with that for people who want it, but if that's the only thing you allow, then we're probably getting a lot more of it than we would have in a post-zoning scenario. Interesting. And, and on, on, to carry on that train of thought, though, on the reverse side of things, I suppose, you know, the opposite of sprawl in a, in a way is sort of a densification and also, you know, building more in the urban center rather than, as you were saying, like, you know, if it becomes easier to build single detached family homes right on the outside and, and, and the outside, of course, in many cities, especially in Ottawa, Canada, just seems to continue to grow. And it's just we get more outside, outside, outside till you have that sprawl. Um, but but of course, the opposite about that of that would be, for instance, new developments or newly renovated buildings or new dwellings dwellings or new anything really uh, being built more in the uh, in the actual center um but when that does happen there seems to be another problem on the other side when people talk about this idea of gentrification or you know certain areas of the city being redeveloped in certain ways that kind of back to your other point some people observe is really meaning that the kind of person that would have been in this neighborhood before is no longer able to be in this neighborhood because of affordability of the style of thing going in there or or, or what have you so someone might say, yeah, it'd be great, uh, Nolan, if we could build more in the urban center again and and, and, and cut off this sprawl. But, w- but when that does happen, you end up uh, tearing down, you know, for example, uh, locally here to the ILS, people would say, you know, old style, smaller, single detached Ottawa family working class homes and end up with a bunch of high end condos and apartments no one can afford anyway. Um, but is that really just another again, to, to the whole theme of our conversation here, that the gentrification, that type of thing I just highlighted, is that just another zoning issue again, where the city's basically saying, sure, you can tear down this unit hill here and, and build upward, let's say, but it only needs to be X, Y, and Z high-end type unit, for, for example. Because I think other people, when they think, again, and this is my main point here, when people might agree with you they don't like sprawl, but they also see bad things happening when there is developing, uh, when there is development more downtown or in the urban center too. They, they think it just comes with a different set of problems. Absolutely. And I, I think it's glad we're talking about it right after talking about sprawl, um, because you know, there's a certain amount of neighborhood change that's going to happen no matter what. And I actually think that's natural and probably somewhat healthy, right? Communities might get, uh, you know, highly distressed communities might over time uh, uh, recover and and have more investment and have a, uh, a range of, of different types of people in a community. Uh, to my mind, that's, that's healthy if it happens, uh, you know, in a natural way. What's happened, I think, in a lot of North American communities is that we've made it very, very, very hard to build infill housing. So if you're somebody who wants to live in a city, um, you probably can't afford to live in the high opportunity uh, uh, neighborhood that you would like to live. But so instead, what you do is you go and rent or buy a home in a historically distressed area of the city. Of course, if it's a homeowner, they get a payday. But if it's a renter, uh, they get priced out. Or if it's a a property owner who doesn't want to sell, their property taxes might start going up and they might feel the pressure uh, uh, to leave. Of course, that's it depends on your local public finance scheme. Um, but so I think I, I can very much sympathize with uh, folks who are concerned about this um, uh, because in many cases you have this explosive pressure happening in historically low-income marginalized communities because uh, you know two or three streets over there's a very affluent, very wealthy neighborhood where there's enormous housing demand. People want to be near it, but that neighborhood's not building any new housing. So all of that demand gets pushed as a result of these arbitrary constraints on new construction in the wealthy neighborhood into the poor neighborhood. I would say too, this is a tough issue because 
Uh, new development is a lagging indicator of these things, right? By the time new buildings are actually getting built in a neighborhood, the prices of the existing stock have gone up. You know, I think people put people put too much attention on the conspicuous new condo building that's being built. I mean, this gets to, you know, Bastiat's concept of the seed and the unseen, right? We see the new condo building go up, concurrent prices going up, and we think, oh, that new development is causing prices to go up. On the contrary, that new condo is downstream of the unseen, which is rents and home prices were going up in that neighborhood two, three, four, five years before the condo building ever even breaks ground. That's the unseen that we don't fully realize. And you have to ask yourself, why were those prices going up? You know, it might be just that there's natural population or economic growth, but in many cases it's going up because folks might have wanted to live in a high opportunity neighborhood, uh, but they got priced out and they had no option other than to uh, pivot all of that demand to historically marginalized neighborhoods. So, you know, I we, we have a piece on this over at Market Urbanism that I think is a real classic, uh, basically saying, you know, the battleground over gentrification is not in poor or working class neighborhoods. It's in wealthy neighborhoods that have used zoning to block any new homes from being built, you know, in many cases for 50 years. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So, so like, then I guess, I'm wondering if this is getting too in the weeds here too, because I'm, I'm thinking of someone like, for instance, Brian Kaplan, who does work on like, you know, um, you know, his, like his whole like build baby build mantra and stuff too. But is there still, an, I, I think you're correct, I guess. Let me restart and say that like, yes, when some, the scene and the unseen, when someone sees that kind of condo get erected, they go like, oh my God, like, you know, this neighborhood's becoming unaffordable. It used to be this nice area down by this bay here. Now you just got all these condos going up. It's pricing people out of the market, et cetera. I totally agree with you. That's a seen and unseen thing, but but is there still not sort of to some degree um, an area where you can point to where we say zoning and some planning it actually is an issue at that point? I mean, for instance, if there's a height restriction where condos could be taller, maybe that kind of makes sure that the prices and the, the supply isn't constrained as much. Uh, often we see cities, especially like in Toronto, they really get very designy with the way that they want their condos and they start talking about parking spaces and like, you know, and the, that, you know, and, and by the time you get into all these regulations, um, you know, it might not necessarily be the condo's fault per se, but it's also the fact fact that the, the condo is also part of sort of uh, the inner city development, I guess, is also part of another, you know, over-designed urban planning type situation anyway, if, if I'm if I'm making any sense there, because that's what I'm trying to get to the root of, whether, whether you oh, agree absolutely. with that or not. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'll give you a personal example here, right? I mean, so I live in Los Angeles and I, I live in West Los Angeles. I have friends here, I have family here. Uh, I would quite like to stay in Los Angeles. Um I would even like to stay in my neighborhood. Uh, unfortunately, in West Los Angeles, uh, almost no new housing has been built over the last 50 years, um, right? And I'm not asking for a mansion. You know, my girlfriend and I are looking at things like condos or townhouses. We would uh, A townhouse would be incredible. A two-bedroom condo would be uh, perfectly fine. That stock literally doesn't exist in West Los Angeles. So what are our housing options? Our housing options are, if we want to buy, we have to go to a place like South Los Angeles or other historically marginalized neighborhoods. Uh, where the housing stock is still affordable to us. Of course, that comes at the cost of limiting the housing supply for um, <clears throat> folks at the margins for whom those neighborhoods were a housing affordability safe haven, right? Um, there's a lot going on here, but I want to draw the connection very clear. The reason why folks are doing stuff like that and and placing a lot of new demand and development pressure on lower income neighborhoods is because we've made it where it's impossible to build in the places where demand and housing development opportunities are highest, right? Um, would there be this explosive uh, demand pressure in gentrifying neighborhoods and cities across North America if higher opportunity areas had just been building a steady amount of new supply? Probably not, right? Probably not. 
And so um, that's key, right? In many cases, you have the highest opportunity areas, the areas best suited to a lot of new housing production being subject to zoning rules that don't allow apartments or allow apartments, but place very strict limits on the number of units you can build or place very, very, very strict height limits that just don't reflect market realities. And so then, of course, as with so much of zoning, the cost of the system ends up falling on marginalized communities. Right. And just looking at the time here, um, before I move us to our formal wrap-up, I'm going to get one more pillar of conversation in here. And it's just sort of like a reaffirmation because we've talked about a lot and this has been really great so far. And, and as I said multiple times, like a lot of what we talked here about here like has you know many pillars of conversation that can go and become their own episodes. So, so maybe we'll do that if you'd like to come back. <laughs> but in the meantime... I would love that. that no, that'd be great. And, and in the meantime, though, just, just to reaffirm and, and kind of bring a full circle on our main theme here, um, like what your personal conclusion recommendation is. Is it to eliminate all zoning? Is it that we need to radically rethink and go back to zoning being a like a, a basic health and safety and make sure that industrial sludge is not dumped in a river, but beyond that, we're good <laughs> to go? I, like Again, uh, I started off by asking a question about your high-level elevator pitch to wrap up like your personal recommendation and conclusion as far as what municipalities and so on should do. What's your kind of high-level elevator pitch for that? Should, you know, What should zoning look like, if any? I, I'll address one thing and then I'll get to my, my elevator speed. Sure. Right. So the, the, the sludge being dumped in the river, this is a great example because I think this is the type of thing that people think zoning is important for. And this and almost every other real substantive environmental issue that you can think of in a city is dealt with rules that have nothing to do with zoning. Yeah. Good right? point. Good point. Um, and, and I think, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not knocking you here. I think this is a very common sort of misconception um, that I want to clarify Right. So we, we we know, I think every serious person in the space knows that we need either radical reform uh, to zoning codes or we need to move to a new system of land use regulation uh, completely. Um, I'm happy to report, um, you know, significant like liberalizing reforms to zoning, I think, are happening all over North America. Uh, I work for California YIMBY, where we advocate for uh, legislation at the state level that makes it easy to build uh, new housing, all different types of housing typologies at all different income levels statewide. Um, so we've done a lot of exciting things. Many jurisdictions are saying, hey, we're going to remove single family zoning regulations that block the construction of small multifamily buildings in residential neighborhoods. Uh, right. Of course, Minneapolis somewhat famously did this first. A whole bunch of other places have followed. The state of Oregon has done this. Um, you have many jurisdictions uh, eliminating parking requirements, saying, hey, look, we, 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 we are comfortable leaving it to the market to figure out how much parking needs to be built, and we're not going to force a bunch of parking that gets built uh, at the cost of housing affordability. Uh, you have uh, jurisdictions and states dealing with things like minimum lot sizes or uh, allowing residential uses in uh, commercial areas. I mean, it's, it's this, this issue is like the genie has come out of the bottle, and all across the United States, in Canada, cities and states and provinces are are reckoning with these rules. And I think that's really positive. I think we're going to be able to pluck a lot of the low-hanging fruit here and get a lot of positive change. But as you've suggested, I, I think we can go a little bit further, right? I mean, I think that um, one of the fears I have is that we might get reforms today, but the uh, special interest uh, and, and distortionary uh, incentives baked into zoning might lead us back to a system that uh, is deeply suboptimal like the one we have today. And so to my mind, I what I try to argue for in the book is what do we actually want land use planning to do? I think everybody would agree we need growth to be coordinated with infrastructure. We need rules in place to make sure that neighbors aren't doing things that that 
harm the quality of life of 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 one another. I don't think anyone would dispute that as as something as a project for uh, municipal planners. Where I think we've gone wrong is this completely futile project of saying what land use at what density is going to be allowed on every single parcel in the city. I mean, you know, I don't think you need to be a dyed in the wool Hayekian to realize that no one person can sit down and make these plans, right? And to be clear, I am a dyed in the wool Hayekian. But I don't think you even need to get quite to that point to realize this is kind of a crazy project, right? And we actually, we don't know uh, the appropriate use or density above and beyond these basic considerations of infrastructure and externalities. We don't know what needs to be built on any given lot, but we have a mechanism for revealing that. Right. Uh, we have right markets which allow people to say this is the type of housing that I would like where I would like it. These are the types of commercial uses I would like to live near. Uh, this is how I might like to travel around my city. Reintroducing uh, some of that choice, I think, is absolutely key. And that involves saying, OK, we're going to get rid of this failed project, failed 100 year project. And by the way, zoning is quite new. Zoning is zoning is a very new institution. So we're going to give up on this failed 100-year project of sitting down and rigorously saying for every single parcel they allowed use and density and open it up and refocus Laney's planning on those core things where uh, uh, we can actually create value and create an ecosystem where people can be planners for their individual lives. You know, to my mind, I'm a, I'm a trained uh, uh, professional city planner. This is how I think of what we should be doing. Our role, our responsibility is to create a framework wherein people have maximum freedom to plan their lives, the type of homes they live, the type of neighborhoods they live in, the type of businesses they can start. To my mind, I think we need to get back to that uh, 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 basic insight. And I think that involves uh, uh, moving beyond the system we have today, but building a much better system of land use regulation uh, that will foster that type of environment. I talk about some of those possibilities in the book, and maybe I'm going to have to come on and we can dive into some details uh, in a future episode. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. That'd be great. And with that, our, our time is actually pretty much almost wound up. And uh, and I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up here. And, and you know, I'll, I will say again, we've talked about a lot and, uh, and and you were kind of already doing a good job summing up a lot of, of some of the main takeaways there and what you were just saying. So if we were to bring everything full circle and put a finer point and maybe chisel down some of the things you're saying right at the end there to, to ask you the official last question. I ask all the guests at the end to make sure that they ultimately have the last words, which is really like, so in everything that we've said, this conversation and as a tail end to what you were just saying there is like, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether we need zoning and, and the problems that zoning causes and all the other great things we've talked about? Like, I mean, you were doing a great summary right there, but if you really wanted someone to take away one or two or just a few things in everything you've said this whole time with me here today, what would that ultimately be that you want to leave someone with from this chat? Right. Two things. The first is we have zoning policies in place that have made many cities across North America unaffordable, inaccessible, segregated, and sprawling. Um, the good news is it doesn't have to be this way. Um, there are reform efforts underway uh, all across the U.S. and Canada, both at the state, provincial, and uh, local level. Get involved, right? Um, ask your local and, 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 and state or provincial elected officials what are we doing to remove some of these regulatory barriers to building more affordable, more equitable, more sustainable communities? Um, how are we reckoning with this 100-year-old uh, regulatory framework that we know is broken? What comes next? To my mind, this is a space where there's a ton of reform energy. And this is one of the special policy areas where you can learn about it and you can actually get engaged and you can see policy change you know, within a matter of months, um, depending on where you are. 
I've seen so many jurisdictions uh, where they weren't having these conversations six months ago, and now they've adopted things like eliminating single-family zoning or 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 um, scaling back some of these onerous regulations that are raising housing costs. So I would say cities in the U.S. and Canada face a lot of challenges right now. The good news is that we have a pretty clear sense of what needs to change to fix them. Go out and get involved. Great. I think I think that's a great place to leave it. So Nolan Gray, thank you very much for joining me in the Curious Task today. It was a great chat. Alex, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchediak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.